This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. Tonight, we apply our patent-pending Stanley rubric to The Great Dictator, starring Charlie Chaplin, Paulette Goddard, Jack Oakey, and Reginald Gardner. However, quickly, before we get to the show, next week, we will be covering a 1980s classic, Beverly Hills Cop. Search it on realgood.com or in the Real Good app to find where you can stream it. Also, you can still sign up for our weekly newsletter, either by the website in the show notes, you can subscribe at the bottom of every page, or you can email us at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. And, as always, please like, follow, rate, and review the show on whichever podcast platform you use. So with that, we have another returning guest to the show for her record-tying fourth appearance on the show. It's Sarah Duncan. Welcome back. Thank you. Glad to be back. So if you listen to our recent episode on The Artist, you know that Sarah is a big fan of silent films, and there's arguably no bigger star for silent film than Charlie Chaplin. And yet, you've been asking us to do this movie, which was his first foray into talking pictures. So why The Great Dictator? Well, this is one of the only films of his that I have never seen on any place, and it it's always discussed in um, my history classes and uh, it even came up in some of my anthropology classes as kind of a, a way of, or a good lens to look at the war through and specifically this time period. And it's just not one that I'd ever gotten the chance to see. So it, it was a great opportunity to get to see the film, kind of get to review it, got get to look beneath the surface of uh, what this is really talking about. When Sarah says the war, just for context sake, if you haven't seen the movie yet or uh, you haven't panned over, I'm, we're going to get to our plot summary here in a minute, but she's specifically referring to this is a satirization of Adolf Hitler and the Nazi regime from World War II. So, Dad, what, if any, is your relationship to Charlie Chaplin or The Great Dictator? I'm familiar with it. I've never seen it. I know it's discussed. It is part of the story. Traplin filmed this more as a statement to try to counter the America First movement and Charles Lindbergh than anything, and basically to support Britain. He was a British citizen and just living in the United States at the time, so this was done primarily for that purpose. So that's that's the extent of my knowledge of it. Okay, so it's more contextual than anything with a relationship. Correct. All right. Well, as we do each week, we'll give you the context for this film. Uh, Dad, do you have your plot summary ready? I do. After dedicated service in the Great War, a Jewish barber, played by Charles Chaplin, spends years in an army hospital recovering from his wounds. Unaware of the simultaneous rise of fascist dictator Annoyed Hinkle, also played by Chaplin, and his anti-Semitic policies. When the barber, who bears a remarkable resemblance to Hinkle, returns to his quiet neighborhood, he is stunned by the brutal changes and recklessly joins a beautiful girl, played by Paulette Godard, his neighbors, 
and the disgraced commander Schultz, played by Reginald Gardner, in rebelling? Will the forces of hatred or the cause of humanity win out in this epic satire? Cast for this movie, Charlie Chaplin as the Jewish barber and adenoid Hinkle, Paulette Godard as Hannah, Jack Oakey as Benzino Napoloni. Try saying that five times fast. Reginald Gardner as Commander Schultz. Henry Danielle as Garbage, a parody of Joseph Goebbels and Hinkle's loyal Secretary of the Interior and Minister of Propaganda. And finally, Billy Gilbert as Herring, a parody of Hermann Goering and Hinkle's Minister of War. Recognition for the film. Nominated for five Academy Awards, Outstanding Production, Best Actor for Chaplin, Best Writing Original Screenplay for Chaplin, Best Supporting Actor Jack Oakey, and Best Music Original Score. In 1997, The Great Dictator was selected by the Library of Congress for preservation in the United States National Film Registry as being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. In 2000, the American Film Institute ranked the film number 37 in its 100 Years 100 Laughs list. Did you know? Released 11 years after the end of the silent era, this was Charlie Chaplin's first all-talking, all-sound film. Did you know? Charlie Chaplin wrote the entire script in script form, except for the fake German, which was improvised. In addition, he also scripted every movement in the globe dance sequence. Did you know? Charlie Chaplin got the idea when a friend, Alexander Korda, noted that his screen persona and Adolf Hitler looked somewhat similar. Chaplin later learned that they were both born within a week of each other, Chaplin on April 16, 1889, and Hitler on April 20, 1889, were roughly the same height and weight, and both struggled in poverty until they reached great success in their respective fields. When Chaplin learned of Hitler's policies of racial oppression and nationalist aggression, he used their similarities as inspiration to attack Hitler on film. Did you know? When Charlie Chaplin had heard that studios were trying to discourage him from making the film, President FDR sent a representative, Harry Hopkins, to Chaplin to encourage him to make the film. Did you know? Adolf Hitler banned the film in Germany and in all countries occupied by the Nazis. Curiosity got the best of him, however, and he had a print brought in through Portugal. History records that he screened it twice, in private, but history did not record his reaction to the film. Charlie Chaplin once said, I'd give anything to know what he thought of it. For political reasons in Germany, the band stayed after the war until 1958. Did you know? Charlie Chaplin spent hours studying films of Adolf Hitler to perfect an imitation of his speaking style. He would eventually do this with a combination of nonsense syllables and isolated German words. Did you know? The German spoken by the dictator is complete nonsense. The language in which the shop signs, posters, etc. in the quote-unquote Jewish quarter are written is Esperanto a language created in 1887 by Dr. L. L. Zamenhof, a Polish Jew. Did you know? Charlie Chaplin said that had he known the true extent of Nazi atrocities, he could not have made fun of the homicidal insanity. Did you know? According to documentaries on the making of the film, Charlie Chaplin began to feel more uncomfortable lampooning Adolf Hitler the more he heard of Hitler's actions in Europe. Ultimately, the invasion of France inspired Chaplin to change the ending of his film to include his famous speech. Did you know? Some of Charlie Chaplin's associates tried to talk him out of the final speech about peace. One film salesman said the speech would cost him a million dollars at the box office. Chaplin replied, well, I don't care if it's five million. Did you know? 
Charlie Chaplin accepted an invitation to perform the movie's climactic speech on national radio. Finally, did you know, this film was financed entirely by Charlie Chaplin himself, and it was his biggest box office hit. So Sarah, this is your requested movie. What is this movie about? I would say that this is about the idea of the war and trying to get us to join the war effort because of what's happening overseas um, at a time where the war and particularly remaining neutral was at an all-time high. It was 96% of Americans at the time that this came out supported uh, neutrality. So this was a very unpopular decision. This is Charlie Chaplin's answer to what's going on in Europe, uh, what's going on for him at home, trying to get us to understand what's going on and simultaneously trying to get us to join the war effort in a time where neutrality was really popular. It was 96% of Americans supported the idea of staying out. So dad, since we've now heard all of the background from Sarah, what is the movie about? The prince and the pauper meet fascism. Except one of them's evil. Well, yeah, but I mean, it's the same, it's the same concept, which is two identical people from two different backgrounds who end up swapping places. And that's ultimately what ends up happening. In, in this case, it's, it's Chaplin's answer. He, he's, it's a warning. He's using satire in order to warn us of the future of what's going to happen by the rise of fascism. He's concerned about it, the fact that it's falling across Europe and the impact of what this is ultimately going to have. In part, you know, people talked about Hitler having a Charlie Chaplin mustache and all this. And so there was a constant comparison because they did look a bit alike, it, it, you know, especially the mustache. So this film is his, his statement about his warning about fascism and what can happen if we leave a blind eye to it. I would certainly say that you're on the right track as far as I'm concerned. You cannot be fascism friendly or an ally. And I think too many people were comfortable with being in proximity as long as it wasn't their country. Just kind of digging into the background on this a little bit is, again, when faced with the difficult decisions of nationalistic aggression or just plain out fascism. Too many times we think we can bargain with it, that we can compromise it, that we can pussyfoot around it, and that things will be okay, that this is just a phase or something else. When it has to be physically cut out by the root and burned away in order to be prevented. And I think, unfortunately, that's why this movie is somewhat prescient currently. I don't think any longtime listeners of this program have any illusions of where the three of us stand on the political spectrum. So I'm going to be a little bit more loose with the politics in the moment. We got dangerously close to the edge and we're not really that far or much farther away, even though we have a different occupant of the White House at the moment. But we're dealing with a lot of jingoistic, totalitarian, fascist ideals that are apparently appealing to a whole subsection of our population that has me completely concerned. And that's why, although I did, I did have my problems with this movie, I thought it dragged for a good portion of it. The yes. ending speech brought a tear to my eye. And I'm sure we're going to get into that here in a minute. But 
what I ultimately what I have written down as far as what this is about. The forces of humanity, dignity, kindness, and their progress versus those forces of hatred, bigotry, pride, and violence as comedically satirized by Charlie Chaplin. As we record today, President Biden is doing his first overseas trip into Europe, promoting democracy and trying to point in some ways to, to isolate Putin, Erdogan in Turkey, uh, and I can't remember the guy's name in Hungary and the guy in Poland, uh, trying to um, point out that these are quasi-fascists. And um, Orban is uh, Hungary, and then you have, at much worse, not Poland, but Belarus, and I can't remember his name. Okay. But he's the one that ground the plane a couple of weeks back. That was the big uproar. Alexandra Lukashenko. I knew it. Lukashenko. Yes, known as the sole OG dictator of Europe. Anyway, so let's transition into this. Uh, does any of us not have Charlie Chaplin as best performer? Well, he, like, is 90% of the film. He has the two big starring roles. He was the writer and the director. Yes. And I believe he also served as his own cinematographer. I wouldn't be shocked since he produced... Oh, excuse me. He was also the head producer. Yes. So let's just go from the standpoint that Chaplin is by far and away the best performer. Is there anything particular, though, that you'd like to highlight out of that? At the time that this was done, he was running his own studio, which was United Artists, which he had formed with um, Mary Pigford and Douglas Fairbanks Sr., And uh, so he had no interest. He made this more because I had something to say that I wanted to put in film than anything. So he was financially set, had no real need to do this, but chose to. So to that extent, you know, he brought his character out of retirement pretty much, made it into a talkie. And um, I don't know, there's a lot of subtlety in his performances that come or that uh, tend to come out during the scenes that he did also was a uh, silent film star. There's a large portion of the film that I thought too, where there isn't a lot of talking, almost kind of an homage to uh, the silent era where Chaplin believes he can do more by a facial expression sometimes than he can by a line. That's actually um, for a very good reason. So they actually filmed that at a slower pace than they did when he did Henkel. The average frame rate for a silent film was 116, which is what they did when they filmed The Barber. So if you'll see those scenes, like when he's cutting the man's hairs uh, in the film at multiple different times, um, those were actually filmed at a slower rate. And so his reactions were bigger because he was still doing the silent acting because the barber didn't necessarily have as very much to say. He was more focused on trying to get the message across of the differences between the barber and Henkel. So the big speech at the end for the barber was kind of a big step out into the unknown for him. I heard it compared, and I think in many ways I can see it. Sarah kind of alluded to it a little bit at the end there, but in essence, the tramp, He's kind of playing the tramp-like character through the barber for most of it. 
but then is forced into the open and he makes the grandiose speech that really separates his career. Because after this, he had several films not as nearly as successful as any of his previous ones of the silent era or this particular movie, but a lot of rebellious ideas. Uh, I know that his next film particularly got him in hot water with Huac and on the red list, essentially. So this is him kind of stepping out and being counterculture-ish. His real first talking part. And I think there's a lot of symbolism in that notion being played out through the course of this film. Yeah, Chaplin by far just overshadows every aspect. This was his project. Everybody else is just a peripheral character that's designed to enhance him. Everything from the uh, mock goring, herring, everything about the film was done to enhance Chaplin's performance and to give Chaplin an opportunity to have a say in what his belief was regarding the status of the world at that time. I think there is a lot of creativity in this. I've always had a difficult time with a lot of physical comedy. It does not tickle me in the same way that uh, satirical or biting sarcastic humor does, which is why I think something like the Marx Brothers ends up working for me a lot better than maybe the Stooges or some of the older Chaplin films that are a lot of physical humor. This had a little bit of both. And some of it was in the creativity. I really liked, I don't know if I necessarily giggled, but when, when we talk about herring or garbage or the order of the double cross, you know, it's, those are just very comical in how they're set up because you know what they're supposed to be representing. I liked these a little bit more than uh, some of the other Chaplin films that Sarah and I watched last year. All right, so let's turn to secondary performers then. Dad, what did you have? Paulette Goddard. She had probably the widest range of performance. She had to be vulnerable, but yet feisty, and had to be kind at times and impassionately hostile at others. So she had the broadest range of emotions and the most acting uh, requirements of her. I had her down as my most charismatic. I think that the way that we pan in a lot of close-ups to her and give her such agency in this movie was refreshing, given that a lot of the women in films in the 30s and 40s were just kind of standard side pieces that didn't have a lot to do. Even in a Chaplin film, they were kind of bystanders most of the time, whereas she did have some quite compelling action to her particularly in beating up the double cross guards. I actually, for this category, had Reginald Gardner. So you just took my other one, too, but why for you? I enjoyed how he played out the character, and he is somebody who, you know, he owes a loyalty to this man who saved his life, and you can see that through multiple different scenes. So I think he played that out rather well because he was simultaneously trying to show the turmoil within the character for abandoning the loyalty that he should have to Der Führer, for lack of a better term. Heil Hinkle. <laughs> I think he just did a really good job playing that off. He played the traitor, he played the loyal friend, he played, you know, all these different parts and simultaneously did it while 
making at least me laugh. I mean, how can you not the airplane scene? Yeah, so that was exactly what I was just going to mention, is if you need a scene to point to why he was good in this film, it's the airplane scene. I'm going to faint. Why are we upside down? You know, and all the little things that go into it. While in, it's over the top, it never seems too much that you don't have at least some semblance of buy-in. It never goes too far. And he does a good job of just straddling that line. I do enjoy him in several of the other sequences of this movie, uh, notably right before the coin cake scene in the (laughs) oddly prescient suicide mission scene. But he's good in a lot of different parts. He's good with the physical humor. He's good acting off of Chaplin. He plays a very good partner for Chaplin in this film in a lot of ways. And so I thought he was the best, even though we have a very stark gap between basically because 90% of the film, as we mentioned, is Chaplin. So where do you take from? I guess maybe Commander Schultz is 3 to 4% of this movie? <laughs> About. Uh, I'm a little surprised nobody picked Jack Oakey. I almost did. I, I did really enjoy him. But he seems to be more one-dimensional as far as characters go because he really only has one side. But he's only in a couple of scenes. He doesn't have to be multidimensional. He's supposed to be playing an archetype, which the three of us know, but for most of history has been kind of lost. It's the one thing that didn't really age well about that character is Mussolini was kind of an afterthought by the time we got to about 42, 43. Mm-hmm. Hitler had to prop him up by that point in time. He was dispo- or deposed and Hitler had to invade and reinstall him in control. Yeah. Well, and uh, I would, one of the things about this movie and Mussolini that I find it funny is that the, a full version of the movie was never released until the 60s because they wanted to pay respect to his widow. So they were cutting scenes out of the movie. So Sarah, who was your most charismatic? Uh, Paulette Goddard. All right, I had already talked on that as well, but did you have any additional thoughts? I really liked just the way that, as especially as a woman, they actually did give her action sequences. And, you know, it wasn't just the typical female damsel role which drives modern women insane. She was actually doing something. She had a purpose. Are you a modern woman, Sarah? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Nowhere in there, Sarah, did you have anything to say of why Paulette Goddard was charismatic? I think she was extremely charismatic because she could play up those things. And you still, she she was in those intense, like, action scenes and stuff. But you kind of were getting in there with her and like, yeah, you, you know, you hit him over the head with a pan. <laughs> I don't know. It was one of the more believable performances. <laughs> I, it, it's one of those, it, she's a character that I definitely found myself continuously rooting for. And somebody who just, her character was on screen and you were instantly pulled closer. All right. So let's go into best scenes. Sarah, I'll let you go up first. I will go with the globe dance. Uh, that was honestly one of my favorites. And once I did a little bit of research into the movie, finding out that that was loosely based off of one of his home movies made it that much better. <laughs> Whose home movie? Charlie Chaplin's. Oh. It was a home movie from 1928. 
because he would take the globe around his house and was doing this dance. And I don't know that that was kind of like a really memorable scene for me. It seemed like it was supposed to be significant, but I couldn't understand why. Like it was supposed to represent something. It just him having the world in his hand. I guess. I don't know. It just didn't hold the same sway that I think it's supposed to have for how much space it incorporates right into the middle of the movie. Like almost the exact center, if I remember right. Well, but you look at that scene and what it is, is he's playing around with the world and he's trying to, he thinks he's going to control it and he ends up popping it. Okay. I can see the symbolism of that. I don't know. Maybe I'd have to go back and appreciate it. When I first saw it, I'm just like, okay, this is kind of sure. But all right, dad, what'd you have down? Uh, returning to the barbershop, the whole scene with him removing the, the W from Jew on the front of his uh, flower shop to uh, Goddard hitting the double cross guards or soldiers in the head. That whole sequence kind of foreshadowed what the rest of the movie was going to be like. Yes, it was a comedic rebellion. Yes. So for that, I, I enjoyed that. Once, or After a few minutes, after I figured out kind of what was going on. First one I had down is World War One. I. I actually thought it was one of the best openings to a Chaplin movie that I can remember. I really like the opening scene from modern times, but I, I equally like this one as well. Just simply with a lot of the physical humor, it's one of the few times I thought the physical humor really worked because of the context and the staging of the scene. You want to go with the shell that's a dud that keeps turning around and pointing at him or him in the ripcord or him with the machine gun and then having to go to the plane. and You kind of get into that one whole sequence. And I just thought it was a really good representation. It reminded me more of Marx Brothers films in that sequence than anything else Chaplin had done. I thought it was a stark contrast to a lot of the silent era stuff that he'd done up to that point. So uh, it was a, it was a nice and welcome change as far as what my expectations were. I, I think it that scene portrayed a lot of this, the sheer folly of the war. Oh, there's a dud. Well, go check it out. Never thought it, never conceivable that it would blow up and kill you if you checked it. And I thought they were able to hammer home a lot of that same essence. Every time that uh, Herring came to him with a new military invention. Yes. <laughs> the bulletproof vest that wasn't bulletproof or the parachute that was uh, in a backpack but didn't open. It was a hat. Oh, it was in a hat. My bad. Yes. <laughs> By the way, did anyone else have a problem with the fact that the chin or I don't remember there being a chin strap on the helmet? I did note that, so I didn't know how that was going to work. Moreover, you'd have to be really thin because otherwise your neck would be three inches or three feet long by the time you hit the ground. Anyway, all right, next scene. Sarah, you're up. I can't believe we haven't already brought it up, but the pudding scene. The pudding scene where she puts one in everybody's pudding and then he eats them all, spitting them out on the table. I think it's just very poignant because, you know, it, it also goes to show that, you know, nobody wants to actually sacrifice themselves for the cause. So he just keeps eating these coins as he finds them in his pudding. And so it's both the comedic and the realization 
that nobody wants to actually go that far. I didn't see him swallow four coins. I mean, I I guess I wasn't paying too close of attention, but I, I until he started spitting them out at the end or coughing them up, I hadn't noticed he had swallowed four coins by that point. Well, everybody kept shoving their coin in his plate. I got that by the time he's spitting them out. I just hadn't noticed. Oh, you didn't happen to notice those people, like, pushing into his food? Well, I noticed one or two, but I didn't think four. Well, two of them he hadn't noticed, and he'd just eaten, and that's when he does the weird, like, bites, like he's biting something hard. I see. I miss a lot of the expression-acting pantomime of Chaplin. That's, again, a reason I struggle with a lot of his films. All right, Dad, I think you're up. The scene where he finally gets to meet the uh, pseudo-Mussolini. Napolini. Napolini. Yeah, I was going to say, did anybody have the hot mustard? (laughs) (laughs) I didn't even pick up on that until, like, after the fact, where they went back and, like, had it displayed on the table because I missed that it was hot mustard or something else. English mustard, yeah. And he put it on his strawberries. Who puts mustard on strawberries? He didn't mean to. He wasn't paying attention. He, I think he thought it was like whipping cream or something. <laughs> but you can see in the movie that he's not looking when he slaps it on. I also had down Schultz and the barber trying to escape the house. Just because there's a lot of physical comedy, but anytime you get one of those escape scenes that, you know, they fall through a roof or he's hanging off of a ledge or any of those other things, I think that actually lends itself to a lot of physical humor that you otherwise wouldn't have a great excuse for. And him setting down the bags and the golf clubs and all the other stuff off of the roof. Yes, they didn't make a loud bang, which I didn't notice, but and then crashing through the rooftop and how they all came about to that point, I I just thought was one of the better comedic scenes of the movie that actually worked for me up until the ending. One of the scenes that we haven't talked about is the meeting of two dictators where Napolini's train pulls in and they keeps moving back and forth because the train conductor missed the um, carpet. (laughs) I really enjoyed that scene and I, I really thought it was kind of apropos because uh, the beginning of the scene, they're looking uh, down and they're trying to keep track of time. And that is one thing. Germans are incredibly like anal about the train times. And so when things are late, it drives them insane. And so I just, from a cultural aspect, I was laughing at that. And then the you know, them shifting it back and forth and they're running back and forth up the platform because he won't get out because he doesn't have a carpet to stand on. The Germans are anal? (laughs) About being late, yes. (laughs) All right. I assume we all have the ending and we'll talk about it here in a second, but does anybody else have any other nominees before that? We didn't actually nominate the uh, plane scene at the beginning which we talked about. I kind of generally buzzed around it. I think that all works with the World War One, but you could count it as its own separate thing. Uh, we've, we've talked about it a few different times, but yeah, even with the upside down and then the water's gone. And I, I, the biggest thing that struck me about that particular scene is I don't know how they filmed it. Yeah, no clue. 
because they quite literally would have had to have been upside down at some point in that. I thought for sure they just turned the camera upside down or something like that. But when the water's shooting straight out, like pure gravity, they must have been upside down in some regard. So either they suspended the plane upside down or did something. And I, I'm just curious how that would have been filmed. All right, so let's talk about the ending then. Anything in particular that stood out to you? He went from being rather passive and not wanting to speak to being very impassioned very quickly. And uh, the transition was almost instantaneous. And I'm kind of going, wow, apparently you really found your voice quickly. That didn't really bother me because of what he was saying. I, I guess I can get it from a technical standpoint, but I had already known this was coming. Uh, I'd watched great movie monologues of like cinema, and this was one of them. And it was like a, a top 10 list or something on YouTube one time. So I knew bits and pieces of this, but it's a little bit different when it's at the end of the movie and you've watched up to that point and all the things surrounding it and the context and how it kind of has a natural end to it that you needed those two to switch places and for him to have this change of heart moment that to most people would seem like Hinkle, but is not really change of heart. It's what he actually feels. The, the one thing I'll say about the oration is it seems utterly natural to him in a greatly cinematic scene. For somebody who had made his entire career up to that point on never speaking, to be able to deliver that kind of oration with the power and the, I guess you used a correct word for it before, passion of the moment was endearing, engaging, powerful. And again, I think that had we watched this five, 10 years ago, this doesn't have the same pull to it. But as somebody who's lived through January 6th and the past four or five years, I think it takes on a completely different meaning for me. And I, I couldn't help but think of the modern moment and somebody making a, a certain similar impassioned plea and whether or not anyone would actually listen. All right, so Sarah, what's your favorite scene then? I'm having a really hard time choosing just one, but I think there's a reason that this movie is talked about by historians and anthropologists, and it's because of his message to humanity. It's the last scene. It's the one that made this movie so incredibly famous and it's the one that still speaks. So that's my favorite scene. Dad? The airplane scene. Just from the fact of the water and I'm passing out and flying upside down. I just think that that is a scene that was so well crafted. And I would consider it actually a separate scene. I just thought it was so well done that it, uh, it, it really was quite a uh, work of art. Yeah, I, I do appreciate that one, but my most indelible and my favorite scene are, again, the same thing. I often do that, but it, it's the final speech. And I take it from a couple of different standpoints. One, to me, it's the most rewatchable scene of the movie. Two, coming from somewhat of an acting background, I have a great appreciation for a profound monologue, given the fact that I also talk often in monologues, particularly during this podcast. And three, 
the difficulty of doing that monologue that well in like a one take. I, I think somewhere I saw in just my basic overview research that he blinked only 10 times during a five minute scene to be able to hold that level of concentration and just sheer power. You had to have complete command of your craft. And so for me, that's both my favorite and the most indelible moment of this movie. Is there a most indelible for you? I have to go with the message to humanity. He just speaks so earnestly and with such fire that, you know, it's one of those things that you just are kind of in awe of. And, you know, to take the time and the energy and to use the rhetoric of someone that spews nothing but hate and learn it so well that you can do something like this is absolutely incredible. Dad, I think I'm sensing a theme. Did you end up in the same place on Most Indelible? Uh, Yes, I did, because quite frankly, that scene in and of itself, I've spent most of my life either involved in politics, watching politics, being involved in stuff over the long haul, both primarily locally, but I've made comments and I've made warnings and I've made statements to people I know, be careful of this. You know, there's a certain element of prof- uh, that's prophetic that he's giving you not only his impassioned speech, he's warning you of what apathy could ultimately lead to. And he's telling you, don't get stuck in this. It's more or less a uh, an anti-America first and Charles Lindbergh monologue it's telling you just the opposite that america's interest in the world and in humanity's interest is to fight fascism hate and uh, war and that is really to do it in that impassioned way uh, to try to convince people of the validity of your argument in that way just makes it very indelible Absolutely. Well, this is a good spot to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Thank you for rejoining us. Dad, do we have anyone to remember this week? Uh, Yes, Clarence Williams III, Link, from the Mod Squad, a show that was on when I was a very young boy. He also was in Purple Rain, which was the um, Prince film half-baked, and uh, was in Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Uh, He was 81. Uh, Also here today, and I don't know if uh, this was added to your list, but Ernie Lively Jr. uh, passed away at age 74. He's the father of Blake and Jason Lively. He was a character actor for a long time, appeared on TV shows like The West Wing, That 70s Show, The X-Files. He was also in the movies Turner and Hooch, American Pie 2, and The Beverly Hillbillies. So we remember them both fondly this week. So let's move to best funniest lines. Dad, what did you have? Life could be wonderful if people would leave you alone. Paulette Goddard is Hannah. Herring, we've just discovered the most wonderful, the most marvelous poisonous gas. It will kill everybody. Garbage. Brunettes are troublemakers. They're worse than Jews. Henkel, dictator of Tomania, then wipe them out. Garbage. Start small, not so fast. We need get rid of the Jews first, then concentrate on the brunettes. The obvious context being that 
Hinkle is a brunette. Mm-hmm. Dad? That's all I had. Does anyone have anything else before we get to the final scene? No. All right, I had one more. Garbage. We've had to make a few arrests. Hinkle. A few? How many? Nothing astronomical. Five or ten thousand a day. A little black humor for you guys. All right, so... Oh, I had one I forgot about. Commander Schultz. Strange, and I thought you were Aryan. A Jewish barber. No, I'm vegetarian. <laughs> How's the gas? <laughs> All right, so let's move over to the final scene. And uh, if you remember our Jaws episode, I'm going to do my best masterpiece theater reading uh, attempt here for you. So first up, we had Garbage right before the final monologue. Victory shall come to the worthy. Today, democracy, liberty, and equality are words to fool the people. No nation can progress with such ideas. They stand in the way of action. Therefore, we totally abolish them. In the future, each man will serve the infest of the state with absolute obedience. Let him who refuses beware. The rights of citizenship will be taken away from all Jews and not Aryans. They are inferior and therefore enemies of the state. It is the duty of all true Aryans to hate and despise them. Therefore, this nation is annexed to the Tomanian Empire, and the people of this nation will obey the laws bestowed on us by our great leader, the dictator of Tomania, the conqueror of Osterlich, the future emperor of the world. And then the final monologue, the Jewish barber. I'm sorry, but I don't want to be an emperor. That's not my business. I don't want to rule or conquer anyone. I should like to help everyone, if possible. Jew, Gentile, black men, white. We all want to help one another. Human beings are like that. We want to live by each other's happiness, not by each other's misery. We don't want to hate and despise one another. In this world, there is room for everyone. And the good earth is rich and can provide for everyone. The way of life can be free and beautiful, but we have lost the way. Greed has poisoned men's souls, has barricaded the world with hate, has goose-stepped us into misery and bloodshed. We have developed speed, but we have shut ourselves in. Machinery that gives abundance has left us in want. Our knowledge has made us cynical, our cleverness hard and unkind. We think too much and feel too little. More than machinery, we need humanity. More than cleverness, we need kindness and gentleness. Without these qualities, life will be violent and all will be lost. The aeroplane and the radio have brought us closer together. The very nature of these things cries out for the goodness in man, cries out for universal brotherhood, for the unity of us all. Even now, my voice is reaching millions throughout the world, Millions of despairing men, women, and little children, victims of the system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that has come upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die, and the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. Soldiers, 
Don't give yourself to these brutes who despise you, enslave you, who regiment your lives, tell you what to do, what to think, and what to feel, who drill you, diet you, treat you like cattle, and use you as cannon fodder. Don't give yourselves to these unnatural men, machine men, when machine minds and machine hearts. You are not machines. You are men. With the love of humanity in your hearts, don't hate. Only the unloved hate, the unloved and the unnatural. Soldiers, don't fight for slavery, fight for liberty. In the 17th chapter of St. Luke, it is written that the kingdom of God is within man, not one man nor a group of men, but in all men. In you, you, the people, have the power, the power to create machines, the power to create happiness. You, the people, have the power to make this life free and beautiful, to make this life a wonderful adventure. Then in the name of democracy, let us use that power. Let us all unite. Let us fight for a new world, a decent world, that will give men a chance to work, that will give youth a future and old age security. By the promise of these things, brutes have risen to power, but they lie. They do not fulfill that promise. They never will. Dictators free themselves, but they enslave the people. Now let us fight to free the world, to do away with national barriers, to do away with greed, with hate and intolerance. Let us fight for a world of reason, a world where science and progress will lead to the happiness of all. Soldiers, in the name of democracy, let us unite! And with that, let us move to our Stanley rubric. Legacy. All right, Sarah, you have been trying to give us historical context to questions we didn't ask for it. <laughs> Legacy, what do you have now? I actually had this at a six, conservatively. Um, this isn't a movie that's widely known. This isn't something that a whole lot of people are going to jump right on because they know what this movie is. This is going to be something that historians are going to look at. This is something that anthropologists studying this particular era are going to look at. And film people, this is not something their average person is going to sit down and want to watch so while i think that that great speech is talked about a lot in film and uh specifically in the hollywood industry i don't think that the overall movie is sarah doesn't probably know since the last time that she was on that we've kind of divided the character or the category into two things at this point but she kind of alluded to both of those dad did you do that for your score Yes, and I came up with identical 2.5 for both. To be perfectly honest, I'd heard of the film. I knew what it was about. I knew it was discussed. It was something that's come up in history classes. It's been discussed when you're studying uh, the America First movement and such. But it really never had legs after World War II. It just kind of ended. To be perfectly honest, uh, there was a short done about the same time with the Three Stooges, with Larry or with Curly as Mussolini and Moe as Hitler, that is better known by most people today than this film was. And that's simply because the Stooges have been played uh, on television to my generation for, you know, were played while we were kids growing up. Boy, I'd, ha I'd struggle to see that as a, an accurate statement, but maybe you're right if it's solely to your generation. I really don't think there are a lot of people under the age of 40 that are, other than maybe as a cultural reference point, 
familiar with anything specific about the Three Stooges, other than just simply the name. So I did break this down into two. So the Great Dictator, as I kind of mentioned before, was the start of Chaplin's dangerously outspoken films. And so I'm just going to read an entry from something I found on uh, thetake.com. He would soon be labeled a communist, constantly red-baited in the press, and investigated by HUAC in the early days of McCarthyism and the Red Scare. In 1947, he released Monsieur Verdot, a film wherein he played a serial wife murderer who saw himself akin to world leaders. It so irked conservatives and HUAC that he was denied re-entry to the United States after 1952, living out his days in Switzerland, only to return to the USA once to receive an honorary Academy Award in 1972, five years before his death. So I think there is significance to how you talk about periods of Chaplin's work, and he is a seminal cinematic figure. So I think to be able to break up these periods does have meaning. This is also his first talking film. It's not its only one, but it is the first one, and so it takes on a certain level of impact beyond that. But I don't know if this is necessarily looked at in the same way by industry critics in the same vein as something like City Lights or even going so far as to like Modern Times or Gold Rush. I think there are a couple of other films that stand out ahead of those in most critic circles because they're much more emphasizing of the Tramp character that he's most known for. So while I think people know Chaplin generally, because he's playing two parts and the Jewish barber, while being somewhat of the tramp character, kind of morphs out of that at times, I don't know if people are as generally familiar with this film as they would be with several of the other films that he's known for because that character is reminiscent across at least a good, I don't know, 15 films from about 1920 through even going back to like the mid-teens, uh, the Tramp character was still huge. So I, I don't know if this is counted as part of the larger scheme of Chaplin's work. I ended up going with 4.5 for critics because I do think that it lives in certain historical context, legacy context, but about a 2.5 for the audience. Because again, I think people are generally familiar with Chaplin. I don't think they're generally familiar with this portrayal of Chaplin. So I ended up with a 7. And between the three of us, you actually made my job pretty easy. That's a six on average. Impact significance, I'll go first. I actually, for most of the notes that I saw, this was a critical success. This was his best monetary movie. I think we mentioned it before that because he was the producer, it was his highest grossing movie pretty much ever. It was nominated for five Academy Awards. He had been nominated for a couple of other things, I think, but he won two honorary Oscars and one for a score for Limelight, which came after this film. So this might be his most critically successful and monetarily successful movie. And also you have to look at the larger context of what was going on, because again, when we refer to impact significance, we're usually looking at it in the short term. This movie was banned, then unbanned in a bunch of different countries. It had impact where, you know, Hitler was at least looking that he wanted to see it, but it was going to be banned because of what the subject material was, and it was kind of out there in risque. 
Well, if we're looking at it from a modern standpoint, the first time that it was even released fully to see in Italy was in 2002 because of the widow of Mussolini. And the first time it was ever viewed in Spain was in the 1970s. So those are a more modern. Well, that was after Franco's death. And you didn't get it even in Germany until 58. By the way, Francisco Franco is still dead. Thank you for that. <laughs> I, I hadn't known, but I, I'm glad that you put that on. So I ended up with four for the industry. I don't think it's his highest critically praised movie. I would probably defer to something like Modern Times or City Lights for that. But I do think it was a five for the audience at the time. I think this was a commercial success and that this was widely heralded by most audiences. So I ended up at a nine. Dad, what'd you have down? I had a five for impact on critics and what was going on. And I had a, a four for, well, excuse me, I take that back. I had 4.5 for both for a nine. I, I, ended, I think that this had a significant impact on the attitude of a lot of Americans in looking at the war in Europe. I would credit this film together with the broadcasts of Edward R. Murrow from the Blitz in London as being two of the more seminal moments changing American opinion about the war and what was going to be necessary for Americans ultimately in order to, to fight the fascists. And to that extent, then that's where I came up with a nine. Sarah? I actually came up with a nine and a half, 4.5 for the cultural significance and five for critic. I think that this did take on a large significance with uh, the people at the time. Like I said before, it was a roughly 96% 96 of Americans supported neutrality at the time this came out. So this was an issue that was widely debated and it got people into their seats. It, you know, it was something that people wanted to see because it was something that went against what they thought at the time. And so it became kind of a turning point for some people. I'd have a hard time sitting at a five for the critic response to this because it wasn't the most heralded movie of 1940. And while it was nominated for a lot of things for what Chaplin meant to the film industry to not give him his Oscar in some capacity during that awards for, I mean, he was, up for three or four of them during that one award ceremony. I know this is in the modern Oscars where they have all the makeup Oscars. That's how you get uh, Pacino getting it for Scent of a Woman. hoo But, like, okay, you would have thought that this would have been that had it been at a five. I just, I'd have a problem. That's why I ended up going with a four on, on the industry critic side. I just would have, I don't know if I could justify a full five, given that there were other pictures heralded ahead of it. All right. So anyway, that does, though, end us at a 9.17 on the average. Novelty. I'm going to hold mine to last. Does somebody want to go first? I will. I had an 8.5. I, I Actually, I th tried to think of films through that the talking era that were this level of satire and especially political satire. And I couldn't think of any. Uh, is it animal crackers is the Marx film that is about the weird country where Groucho ends up taking over as the leader. 
Yeah, but that's more farcical than it is satire. It's not direct satire, no. So I think it is Animal Crackers. And so that's why I went with an 8.5. It was extremely novel. Unfortunately, I took a few points off because it was Chaplin bringing back the little, the little tramp. And I think to some extent the this film was as popular as it was is because there was a generation that was nostalgic for the Chaplin character and he had been off screen for a decade. And it's kind of like, you're going to want to back that up. He had not been out of film for a decade. Modern times came out in 36. Okay. In fact, he hadn't been out of film at all. Well, out of the silent film era, I guess. Modern times came out in 36. Well, but he hadn't done as many films in post-silent film era. City Lights was 31, and that was his first one where it was after Talkies came out. And then 30, or Modern Times was 36. Those were both still silent films after we had the advent, but this was the first one where he did differently. But this one he started to write in 37 after Modern Times was done. Okay. Anyway, the point being is, is that I think there was a certain clamor for him as an, or as an actor and as a character uh, because the number of vehicles that he was in had diminished or had been reduced. So I took a few points off or a point and a half off because it was the resurrection of yet another character. But for the most part, the situation and the direct attack on, on a series of current events I thought was novel. And basically... This may very well have started the whole satire, political satire uh, genre in film. Sarah? Well, I had uh, an eight, and I took a couple points off of, yeah, he had started writing this and production of this in 37, but it was undercut, as we said before, by the Three Stooges. They did come out first, so it wasn't the first of its kind anymore. However simultaneously it's it's this heavy topic as making fun of it so you know that speech at the end makes it stand out which is why i still rate it as high as i did but unlike you i didn't knock off points for the tramp character because while it's still kind of a tramp character i really don't think it's nearly the same as the character that we've seen chaplin in so many of these other films he doesn't play it up to the same standpoint as he normally does. This is a completely new foray into a different type of film for him. So, yeah, he still, you know, if you've been doing something for as long as he has at this point, you're going to have to go and at least work with a little bit of what you know and before you can do something entirely new. All right. I was all ready to go and give this a 10. I had my speech prepared. I had my closing argument. I was going to bolster the hell out of this. And then you gave me the tramp thing, and I have to somewhat accept that one because it's hard to give things a lot of 10. But I agree. This is taking on Hitler right at the outset of the war when we weren't necessarily 100%. I know it's easy with the benefit of hindsight and the Holocaust and all of this and that Hitler has become the face of evil and everything is compared that's evil to him and Nazism and fascism since about 1945. 
But at 1940, we weren't completely sure of who Hitler was or what he was or how bad things had gotten. There were some thoughts. There were some reports. But it wasn't like it was nearly as critical as this is. And this goes right at everything he preaches, down from the nationalistic side to not even mincing words, the Aryan Jew, you know, the the master race stuff. And while it probably isn't as hard on it, and I would say that maybe some of that didn't age well by the time that we got to 1945-46, I still think this is a highly novel film because it was a bit ahead of everybody else in saying, okay, this guy is not cool at all. It needs to be stamped out. And you need to pick a side because if you don't, being a bystander is not a choice anymore. So I really I really thought I would give it a 10. I think you're correct that this is the first big political satire and really you could make through lines that this is responsible for most other political satire that comes after it in some sense or another. I don't know about historical satire, but some. We didn't point it at ourselves nearly as much as SNL has done for the last 30, 40 years. But you could say this is still the first. But the Tramp character, I'll take off a half a point. I'll go with 9.5. So that ends up at an 8.67 between the three of us. All right, let's move to classicness. I'll go first. All right, go ahead. Okay. I didn't think about this over the previous 60 however many shows we've done. But classicness has a tendency to wax and wane. Things that are going on in the present sometimes make something more classical than it would be at another time. And let me put it this way. I don't, I've never done this before, but I'm going to recommend that everyone who has an interest in this area to read a book, the, uh, In the Garden of the Beast by Eric Larson. It portrays the Nazis as actual humans within the context of how they functioned around the family of the U.S. ambassador to Germany in the 1930s and how they were charming people and they, they carried on general conversations and people didn't, found it hard to believe that they were like this as the Nuremberg trials started to come out as to what was going on. And what it does is, is we, we've made Hitler and the Nazis and the fascists into caricatures that they're so evil, no one, we can't understand how anybody could ever have followed them. But when you read this book and you realize that these were people that were very charming and polite and, and kind and they held very elegant parties and people thought they were wonderful and friendly and all this and how easily they can suck you in to beliefs and followings that are well beyond what you would normally have considered uh, adopting. In this context, because of the rise of what I see as totalitarianism and of, especially in the West now, whether it be certain elements within the United States versus Eastern Europe, uh, Russia, Belarus, I I gave it a nine for that reason. I, I can't go a complete 10 because it, it spoke to a time that was specific, case-specific, 
and made fun of a particular polit or politician, but oh, it has so much more relevancy now. If you would have asked me this question, say, 10 years ago, I think I would have probably given the classicness maybe about a four or a five. But after going through the last several years, it's a nine. All right, Sarah, what did you have done for classicness? I had uh, a nine as well, and I I agree with da my dad on multiple points here, as as well as yeah, the the recent events have very much taken into account when when I look at this movie and specifically what's difficult for me to ascertain or weed out from my own viewpoint here is uh, my study of history. And, you know, I've I've lived in Germany where they still watch stuff about the the regime and talk, talk and preach anti-fascism and anti-nationalism and all this constantly. And so seeing a movie where, you know, it's characterized and it it's still so poignant about what's going on and how dangerous this stuff is, it's incredibly necessary i mean it's part of the reason that frankly there's still warning notes on hitler's speeches if you go onto them on youtube so for for that reason for the reason that it's still this classic movie that you can go back to that warns against all of these problems that warns against fascism that preaches for humanity's sake that we need to have peace and lack of a better term, anti-racism, then, you know, it is a very classic film. Just a little uh, aside, your mother was an exchange student in Germany, or what was then West Germany in 1983. And her world history class, they stopped teaching European history in 1932 and resumed it in 1953. So I was really torn a bit. I understand all of your points. In fact, they're pro points in my own personal column for classic. I I think this is poignant. I think this is more relevant. And I, I do appreciate the comment you said, the, the ebb and wane of whether something can become relevant more or less due to current circumstances. It's actually a really good point by you. Where my problems lie are Chaplin as a figure, because I think this is, in many ways, the culmination of what he has to say as a person with a platform. Up until this point, he had quite famously not said anything, really, with any of his characters. He was a purely entertainment figure. This is his one time to kind of come out. And because of that, I treat this a little bit differently. And he's a very complicated figure that I don't think in a modern sense would have the same acclaim. I don't think he'd be canceled, but he has some problematic pieces to his character. The other part of this that there are two other pieces to me that don't age well. One, that even Chaplin himself confesses that by satirizing this, he maybe didn't take the threat or the level of evil seriously enough. I know that's undone a little bit by the, the ending speech, but if that was not there that this would be a very much different tone of movie. Yes, it's fun to poke at the double cross and uh, Herring and 
garbage and and the the other names that are a little bit cheeky but for what the level was that we talked about five or six years after this it's an unspeakable level of vileness that we've now come to understand and i I think from that point it doesn't age well and then finally this is just the simplest part of it and i've maintained this as a part of classicness overall does the humor hold up in a lot of ways and this is subjective on my part i just don't like a lot of physical comedy there are bits that'll make me smile but nothing is laugh out loud funny in this in the same way that i have for other movies of the time because this just doesn't appeal to me so i ended up going with a six i said i would start at a seven after last week and kind of either work my way down back or forth i do think there are some definite cons to this one I gave it points back due to its level of relevancy, but I ended up at a six. So between the three of us, that ends at an eight. All right, rewatchability. Sarah, you're up. Okay, this is a tricky one for me, more or less because this is a a film that you're not going to constantly go back and want to rewatch, but every once in a while it may be something that you want to just take out and depending on what's going on you know what you're studying so i gave this a six myself this is something i'm gonna go back and rewatch this is but um i don't think that the common person is gonna want to see this more than once dad i want 3.5 i've decided that a, a three is a film that if somebody says i'm gonna put this on i'm not leaving the room so i'll sit and watch it I like this film. I maybe should have went with a four based on that, but I went with 3.5 simply because the subject matter is not going to be something that I'm going to find pleasant. I don't necessarily want to think about pre-World War II Europe and and just the sheer horror that was the war as a result of these uh, buffoons. No, that's fair. Again, five for me usually is run-of-the-mill. I could give or take if it's on that I'll sit down and watch her. And build. Needless to say, I'm not actively looking to not watch this. There have been a couple of films recently where we've said, like last week, that you needed to be in the right mode to watch it. I think this is a little bit lighter due to its subject material and the tone that you could watch this very easily in a lot of settings. The only addition I'll make is I'll give it an extra half point because I think realistically, the only thing that I would find rewatchable over and over is again, the final scene. And I think just from that standpoint alone, that one scene, if I ended up rewatching it multiple times, I'll give it an extra half point. So I ended up at a 5.5. So the average then is a five between us. All right, so then when we get to uh, audience score, we had a 92% for Google users, 95% for Rotten Tomatoes, uh, 9.35 generally for the audience. Ends up at a 46.19 and currently places it uh, in between Caddyshack and Rio Bravo on the list. Kind of weird films to be compared directly against, but that's why we have the rubric. (laughs) Yeah. All right, remaining questions. Mine aren't great but i guess the biggest one mine are more overarching i guess does the barber reunite with hannah how long does hinkle remain in the concentration camp before he convinces them that he's not the barber yes 
And do they ever figure that out? Or, you know... Well, does anyone ever believe him? Exactly. And does the entire state just dissolve? Or uh, is Henkel still going to be the leader? All right. The only other one that I had was, is since Henkel has now had a change of heart, and the person who's trying to constantly push the envelope farther and farther as far as the race war, does Garbage try to assassinate the barber? And take power for himself because it's a it's a pretty big 180. How does ev- does everybody just accept that Schultz is no longer in a concentration camp and that he's now favorably viewed by the dictator? Just remember that Joseph Goebbels, in his profession before he was minister of propaganda, was an advertising executive. Well, that's what advertising is. <laughs> Sarah, thank you for being on with us. Did you have anything to plug? I am a travel blogger. Uh, watch me roam and travel with me uh, at that at the nomadic archaeologist on Instagram. Is the the in the tag? Yes, it is. At All right. the nomadic archaeologist on Instagram. Dad, any final thoughts for the week? No, it's been a busy week for us. Um, and... Uh... It's been fun, though. Certainly. I know we're kind of looking forward to a lot of things that we have coming up. We have some exciting episodes that we're either recording, pre-recording, or trying to do, and we have a lot of guests that are going to be coming up. But we're looking forward to it, and we hope that everybody's going to enjoy. Uh, If you have not subscribed, followed, whatever the term is right now to the podcast on whichever platform you're currently listening on, I would suggest doing so because we have some exciting stuff coming up in the next couple of months and uh we just want to take you along for the ride we uh we've been discussing the possibility of a like a hitchcock month in fact did you want to make the quick announcement we are getting nearer to our 75th episode and normally we cover one of the big films for that 75th episode i've told a couple of people in my social circle but do you want to make that announcement well yes a film that was a, a box office flop and didn't make all of its money until 1953 when it showed on TV. But somewhere over the rainbow, The Wizard of Oz. We're not in Kansas anymore. Yeah, we got about six episodes to go after this one to get to that magical 75th, but we are covering The Wizard of Oz. So you have that to look forward to. We also have a revisit episode coming up in the next few. So be on the lookout for that one as we revisit one of the films that we already did on the list. We won't make that announcement quite yet. Well, this is my life. It always will be. There's nothing else. Just us and the microphones and those wonderful people out there in the dark. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Next week, we will be covering Beverly Hills Cop, starring Eddie Murphy, Judge Reinhold, and Ronnie Cox. Check out realgood.com or the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's realgood, R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that you can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com, find us on Instagram at gmotepodcast, or find Dana or I on Twitter at TJ3Duncan or at Dana W. Duncan. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM. <laughs>